Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is psychologist and author Ethan Cross. Ethan's new book is called Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. In it explores how our ability to introspect can be both a blessing and a curse, and why we tend to ruminate on the negative. Today we chat about all the ways that negative self-talk impacts our lives, by manipulating our relationships, polluting our decisions, and making it hard to focus at work, just to name a few. We talk about the lab he founded at the University of Michigan called the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory and the fascinating behavior research they're doing. And he shares a few tools to help manage our chatter so we can break free of the negative feedback loop and regain a little clarity. Okay, let's get to my conversation with Ethan Cross. So your, your book is called Chatter the voice in our head, why it matters, and how to harness it. How do you define chatter, like internal chatter? And why do you think so many of us are so susceptible to the negative aspect of the chatter? So when we experience problems, we tend to focus inward to problem solve and find solutions to them. But oftentimes, our attempts to problem solve backfire. We ruminate, we worry, we catastrophize we experience what I call chatter. So chatter refers to the negative cycle of thinking and feeling that turns the incredible ability we have to introspect and make sense of our problems. It, chatter turns that into really a curse rather than a blessing. And it affects many different areas of our life, right? I think all of the areas of, of our lives that we really care about. It makes it hard to focus at work. It can create friction in our relationships with others because we're always talking about our problems or pushing people away. And it can also influence our physical health in, in 
really problematic ways. So why are some people more susceptible to it than others? Well, when we experience chatter, we tend to really zoom in on a problem super narrowly. And, and that's really a, a defining feature of people who get stuck experiencing this. And, and it, it's an adaptive response, right? Like when something bad is happening, you wanna focus on that problem really narrowly. You, you wanna solve it. But if you, if you lose the ability to step back and see the bigger picture, which I think in the moment, a lot of us forget to do, that's when it can become really problematic. So what do we end up doing? We just try to muscle through it. Like we keep on trying to, well, what if this happens and why should I do this? So you, 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 you talk about when you were four and you, and you talk about your dad who you describe wonderfully in the book is kind of having this beard and cigarette, but being very Zen and, and sort of inspired by Buddhism. So talk a little bit about how he encouraged you to first th think about this inner knowing and inner voice. So my dad was, was quite, quite the character. He was a, sal a salesman who liked watching the Yankees smoking cigarettes and in his pastime reading Eastern philosophy. And when I was a little kid, he used to just always tell me if ever I was upset about something, go inside, find the answer yourself, figure it out, and then move on. And like most kids, I think, I listened to my dad and, and his advice served me well, really, throughout, throughout my childhood and adolescence. And then I got to college and I started, I took a psychology class and I learned that actually a lot of people do exactly what my dad told me to do when they're upset. They introspect, they turn their attention inward. They try to find out why are they feeling the way they are? How can they feel better? But the moment they do that, they're flooded with negative emotions in ways that lead them to feel worse. And so the big puzzle for me became and has been why is it that we have this amazing ability to, to, to introspect, to think about our, our experiences in the world and problem solve? We have this capacity. It serves us so well, so much of the time, but it is also the source of so, such tremendous suffering for a lot of people. And so, so that's what I've devoted my life to studying. It's almost like what you're describing is sort of the difference between intuition, which is this benevolent self-knowing and this kind of manifestation of this darker part of us and yeah. that internal battle for loudest share of voice. So do people who tend to like lean into having more of a propensity to negative self chatter, is there some common denominator there? Do they have anxiety? Do they have kind of ancillary things that make that negative voice the predominant one? Well, so, so chatter tends to predict, so, and chatter is this perseveration, right? You're getting stuck in a negative thought loop and that kind of cycling, getting stuck, think of a, a hamster on an exercise wheel that keeps running and running, but doesn't get anywhere that predicts things like anxiety or depression. So it's a key feature of, of lots of different kinds of emotional suffering. In terms of the features that predict it, certainly there are lots of correlates like difficulty, childhood difficulties, abusive relationships. It's much higher among people who are depressed and anxious, but it also predicts people becoming depressed and anxious. And so there's a bit of a chicken and egg right there. We know that women tend to show higher levels of, of chatter than men, but the tools that exist to help with chatter work equally well for both men and women. We don't really know exactly how 
the genetic piece and the environment piece perfectly work together to predict this. But, but that's true for most things about human nature. We just don't know yet. What do you think is the evolutionary purpose of having this feedback loop of worry, this negative chatter? Well, so I think this is like one of the, one of the main evolutionary advances that distinguish humans from other species is our ability to not be in the moment, which is actually kind of interesting because there's a, the, the movement right now has always has been for quite some time to be in the moment. I have nothing against being in the moment. It's great. I love it. But I would not want to give up my ability to travel into the future and the past, right? My ability to plan for the future, to fantasize about things into the future, my ability to, to savor past victories or learn from my mistakes. This ability to, in our mind, travel is an amazing, amazing tool. And the voice in our head helps us do that, right? Like we're, we're, we're using language to travel in time quite a bit. Chatter is, is when we use that tool in, in a way that is not optimal. So it's, it's almost like a hammer is great for building lots and lots of things, but if you use the hammer the wrong way, it can be the source of destruction. And I think chatter is the, the destructive side of, of our inner voice and our capacity to, to, to introspect. I want to ask you about a distinction that I was thinking about when I was reading your book and you studied psychology. So presumably you've studied young who talked about the shadow and how we kind of sublimate these aspects of ourselves that we don't love or think are optimal into this place that he called the shadow. And so, for example, a lot of my work with my therapist is, is kind of tuning into the shadow, that hurt, really vulnerable or angry part, old part of myself that I don't l- like to let to show to myself, let alone anybody else in the world. And that is a very different inner aspect to me than my worry, obsessive chatter, like, oh my God, did I do this wrong? Is, is there going to be a catastrophe or whatever? But I could see how if I wasn't thinking about the, the distinction, like I might conflate those two entities in a way. And so I was just wondering how you think about the shadow versus the chatter. Well, so the chatter is a more active, like thought loop, per, you're perseverating. You're, you, you can't stop thinking about it. And, and that's not a pleasant state to be in for a variety of reasons. Someone asked me on a previous interview, how do we know if we're experiencing chatter? And my, my answer was, you usually know when, when you're in the midst of, of this experience. So I want you to tell me more about the shadow. Is the shadow the, you're talking about this as the part of you that you're, you're embarrassed or ashamed of. It's, it's the things that have happened, which you may not be actively worried or ruminating about, but it's there. You're aware of it. Is that, is that it? And by, because I think it's so fascinating to me, and I'll tell you why in a second, that you talk about it as a shadow. It loops back to something I talk about in the book. Well, my understanding of the shadow as Jung characterizes it is, is that it's this very real internal aspect of ourselves where exactly as you say, it's the part of us that we are ashamed about. It might be a part of us that is full of rage or that was very hurt as a child. And so 
we don't as adults who are moving through the world and trying to be successful and capable and et cetera, we don't like to connect to that part. And we don't like to, we like to pretend it doesn't exist. And therefore, if you're in traffic and you lose your mind and you're screaming at someone, that's actually the shadow that's usurping you because you haven't acknowledged that your shadow feels that way about you for not incorporating its experience into your experience and that it's something that is constantly suppressed by us. So your shadow can come out and behave in all of these different ways. So part of my work in therapy is tuning into the shadow and really allowing those that negativity, which doesn't sound so much like nervous chatter, but it can be a very enraged or sad aspect of me that is angry at me for not you know, and it could be for not being brave and sticking up for me and my shadow, that kind of yeah. thing. But when you tune into it, it, it definitely feels until you have some practice with it, it definitely feels negative slash dangerous. Well, I think what, what, so what's interesting to me about it is this, the way you're talking about it, it's, 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 it's a negative side of the self, but you're labeling it, right? And you're, you're compartmentalizing it as separate from, from you. And we know that the ability to, you're essentially distancing yourself from that other part of you that's not what you aspire to be like. And, and there can be value in compartmentalizing ourselves and, and this part of ourself that, that we don't like. And so, so that's what I would call like a distancing feature and, and I talk about this in chatter about the value that that distance can provide us. So when we're consumed with with chatter or let's say it's it's thoughts about this, I don't know, side of you that you're ashamed of or embarrassed of or or not proud of when we're immersed in an emotional experience, it can be really hard to think objectively. Right. We're, we're overcome with our emotions. And so the ability to get some mental distance from that experience can be really empowering. And I think you're doing it with language by labeling this and saying, Hey, that's my shadow. That's not me right there. You're separating it from you. So that's how I'd, I'd make sense of that. Which brings me to a question about distancing. You, you talk a little bit about in the book, a certain example of like you of LeBron James talking about himself in the third person when he was talking about moving from Cleveland to the heat and starting to say, you know, I do what's best for LeBron James. And that was, can you talk a little bit about, about more how that is an emblematic moment in, in terms of this distancing that you're talking about? So we, we call this distance self-talk and we find that it can be a really useful tool for, for rerouting our, our inner dialogues when, when they're going off course. And so the backstory is many like, well, let me ask you, have, have, has a friend or a loved one ever come to you with a problem that they're, they're experiencing chatter about they're ruminating, they're worried, they don't know what to do. They present the problem to you and you could advise them pretty easily through the situation. Has that ever, ever happened? Yeah. Pretty weekly, daily. Weekly. You know. Yeah. It, it's like when I give talks on this stuff, everyone's hand goes up. Yeah, of course. That's like part of being human. Right. And the idea is that if it's not happening to me, I can be pretty objective and reasonable about this. What we've learned is that language can provide us with a tool for thinking about ourselves like we were someone else. And when we use that tool, it, it brings with it some of the objectivity that we have when we weigh in on another person's problem. And the way you can do it is by using your name to reason about a problem. So 
all right, Ethan, what are we going to do about this situation? Most of the time when we use names and, and words like you, we use them when we talk to other people. Mm. Like we don't normally use those to refer to ourselves. Normally it's I, me, my, what am I feeling? What, what should I do? So it's almost like a little psychological jujitsu technique. We're using language to, to very quickly shift our perspective, getting us to talk about ourselves like we would talk to a friend. And we find that that can be really helpful when people are immersed in chatter. And, and interestingly, a lot of, you see people doing this spontaneously throughout time and Julius Caesar and Henry Adams, LeBron, I mean, Malawi Yousafzai. Uh, I tell a story in the book that really uh, sticks out to me. So Malawi Yousafzai, youngest person ever win the Nobel. And, and for listeners who, who may not be familiar with her, basically she has this amazing story. She's a young girl and she, at, at, at a very young age, speaks out for young girls' rights to, to receive an education in Pakistan. And so she ends up getting a death threat from the Taliban because she's advocating for young women's rights. And they don't just, they don't just threaten her. They actually, one day when she's riding the bus home from school, they, an assassin boards a bus and shoots her in the face. She fortunately survives, wins the prize, goes on the, the Jon Stewart show and he asks her what I would ask her if, if I had you know, the opportunity, which is what went through your head when you found out that the Taliban were coming to get you? And she says, I used to think to myself, well, what, what would I do if they came to get me? And then I, I would say, okay, Malawa, just take a shoe and, and, and hit him. So she starts off by talking about what I think is probably the most frightening thing any, any person could contemplate, right? Like someone trying to kill you. Not a fun thought. I had it in the beginning of the book. It wasn't pleasant. And then the moment she thinks to herself, okay, well, what would I do? She then switches to coaching herself like she's talking to someone else. So, so this is one tool that can be very useful. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. I'm just fascinated about what, what is an emotion and self-control laboratory? What do we do? Yeah. What do you guys do there? So we have fun and we, we basically, we do lots of different kinds of experiments, things ranging from bringing people into brain scanners to see how they can control their emotions when their emotions are not serving them well, to following people via their, their cell phones, looking to see what effect social media has on their well-being. So, so fundamentally, we're interested in understanding how can people, how can we help people think, feel, and behave the ways they want to think, feel, and behave. That's what we call self-regulation. And I think it's a really important issue that, that we all face, right? So how do we optimize the way we navigate and experience the world? 
and we we know we know I would say a lot less than we'd like to know about this question. So so it keeps us busy. What are you finding about long-term happiness and social media? Well, so social media can be so it's not it's not uh, across the board an ill. It, it's social media is fascinating to me because it's a new environment for us to interact. And we've been interacting in the physical world for a really long time. And from the time you're a little girl, you, you received guidance about how to navigate this world. Like your parents and your friends, they told you, you, you don't walk here. You don't go, you know, you walk here, you don't go there. You, this is how you talk to people. This is how you don't talk to people. We were socialized to learn how to navigate the world in a way that makes it work for us. But no one, no one taught us this with social media. It's so new, right? So, so what do you tell your kids about how to go on to Instagram or Facebook? Are there things that they should or shouldn't do? Science is just beginning to, to teach us what those good and bad ways of navigating these networks are. Some of the things we've learned are you probably don't want to spend a ton of time just passively browsing through other people's Instagram feeds and, and, and Facebook walls, because we know people tend to, to put on their best self when they're on these networks. And, and it makes sense that they do it, right? If, if I can choose the best snapshot of myself, I might as well when I'm portraying it to others. But we know that when people just, just scroll through other people's feeds, they're constantly exposed to the, like the glorified lives of others. And, and they know how ordinary their own life and experience is, and that can make them feel feel bad. So, so I wouldn't advocate just passively scrolling through social media. Instead, use it as a technology to to engage with people, to to have connections, to support others, to get support. There, it could be quite helpful. Do you think there's any link or correlation between social media and negative chatter? Oh yes, absolutely. Do you think that nastiness on the internet, like those comment, terrible comments that people make, is that just an externalized or a projection of their negative chatter? Well, there's definitely, there, there's data showing that people who, who suffer from certain kinds of chatter related conditions are more likely to be ugly on social media, but there's also certain things. What's a chatter, sorry, what's a chatter? Anxiety or or depression. So, so chatter is what often fuels. It's this, these negative thought loops fuel those states. People who are more likely to bully offline do it online too. Probably because they're doing it to themselves. Yeah. I mean, they're trying to feel better, right? By bullying others. There's something really important about social media that I, that I think not everyone may be aware of, which is social media strips away a lot of the basic human elements of, of social interaction. So we're talking right now, I could see your face. I see how you're responding to what I say. If I said something really mean to you, I probably see that register in your face and I, I'd respond accordingly because I'm not a sociopath, right? So I see you just smile. That, that, that gives me information that, that helps our, our exchange be a good one. Social media strips all of that away. So it makes it really easy for us to say things to other people that we would never say to their face, never. And, and, and so then when you, you take into the fact, account the fact that, look, we, we often get pissed off throughout the day and we might wanna express that to others. It means we're more likely to, say, to, 
to act ugly on social media than we are in the offline world. And I think just knowing that can be useful for people who might have the temptation to say thing nasty, say something nasty, because it really can impact others negatively. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your nine to five and the five to nine plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Azra collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Throughout the course of history, there have been accepted periods of time where people talk about having muses or hearing hearing voices or being yeah. you know, inspired by fairies or muses around them, et cetera. And it, at a certain point, that was a very accepted way for mystics or creatives to kind of commune with, with the spirits. And then I believe in around the time of the age of realism, like that was became totally unacceptable to think about in those terms. And people became internalized those voices or had to rely on the internal voice. Is there any link between that kind of the, those muses that people talk about, that externalized voice and the internal experience? Do you think that somehow cutting our or cutting ourselves as a species off from those ways of inspiration like hurt us in some way or hurt the quality of our chatter? So it's interesting. So often like a verbal thought or like hearing a thought pop up into our head is often the source of creativity. And that's true to this day. Like you're out on a walk and, and, and all of a sudden you, you think something like a, a verbal thought pops in your head and it's inspiring. And one of the things we know is that culture can change how we interpret the voice in our head. And so I think one interesting question is in, you know, centuries ago when it was more culturally accepted to hear a voice of divine inspiration were people having the same experience that we're having now, but just interpreting it differently? Like, oh, I just heard myself say something. That's not me. That's some fairy or or whomever. So I think there's likely a cultural element to this. Most people, when they when they hear voices now and are inspired, do recognize that the voice is coming from them, and you do get into interesting questions about. What, what we might call like an auditory hallucination where you hear a voice and you think it's coming from someone else. And that is, that is often associated with certain kinds of mental illness, but it's, it's not, it doesn't mean you have one. There are plenty of normal, healthy people who have those kinds of hallucinations. And so, so their, their connection with creativity is an interesting one. Have you, have you ever had, had a, a voice like that? I wouldn't characterize it like I've had a voice that I've actually heard that sort of presented like an actual voice in the room that made me turn my head. But I do feel that I've had inner, less verbal, but more for me, they present more like as images or as feelings that don't feel that I, that, that I'm generating them that sort of feel like they're coming from. I don't know, some higher power or from some power in nature or something like that. Got it. Do you ever find yourself talking to yourself? I do. And it's funny. I was going to ask you about that because I've noticed that I do it more as I age. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll say, what? I'll but catch myself, why? Now, why the heck did I come in here and open this refrigerator? Or sometimes I will actually, and I, I thought of this because of your book, like, especially if I'm upset, I will say to myself, either inaudibly or barely audibly, like, Gwyneth, it's okay. Yeah. You know, or I'll call myself like the nickname that my mom would call me or my brother, like, Gwyneth, like, come on now, let's keep it together. Yeah. And I, I find that, I find that fascinating because I, I talk about like 20 or so different tools in the book, science-based tools that like people have spent a lot of time like trying to figure out how they work very carefully. Many people use these tools spontaneously without even knowing it. Like my guess is when you're, when you're, all right, come on, Glenn, like, whatever, whatever, what was I searching for in the fridge? You're not thinking deliberately about, okay, let me try to use my, you just do it. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And, and what the science shows is that it can be really helpful. So it's interesting to me how we learn to do that. And we think something, we think it has to do a little bit with parenting, right? So so one of the ways that kids learn self-control, how to control themselves, they learn it from their caretakers. How old are your kids? They are nearly 15 and nearly 17. So if you could go back in time, do you ever have like a memory of when your kids were were really young and like playing with a toy and just talking to themselves out loud? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, so that's how we think self-control begins. Like a parent says, teaches a kid, Okay, Maya, don't hit your sister when you're upset with her. Use your words. And then they they hear it, they ignore you, but then they go off in the corner with their dolls and they, you know, or whatever. Okay, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do this. And now you should do that. And so they're essentially <laughs> rehearsing what their parents tell them, right? And that's how they're learning self-control. And it eventually goes inside their head and they start using language to control themselves silently. But what we learn is that in many situations that require us to control ourselves in some way, we fall back on this very primitive, basic tool, which Mm -hmm. is using language to coach ourselves along. So come on, Ethan, this is what you need to do. Um, So yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of amazing to me, actually, how powerful language is when you think about this process, right? It's like, we're berating ourselves with language. We're worrying ourselves with language. And I never think of language as a particularly, I mean, occasionally destructive, but not in that quotidian way that, you know, and, and this really helped me. I mean, I really paused and I thought, my goodness, am I negatively chattering to myself all day about things I'm doing wrong or I could have done better? And I thought it's just been interesting even to start to observe that because I hadn't really been cognizant of that inner voice and what I'm telling myself. Yeah. No, I think language can be a really powerful tool for shaping the way we think about the world. And we don't often think about it, right? Because if we stop to think about what we were saying (laughs) or thinking verbally, we wouldn't get very far. But we have learned that there are certain ways of using language that, that can help with chatter. I'll give you one other example that I find really interesting that I was totally blind to has to do with the word you, like Y-O-U, you. So you probably remember Sheryl Sandberg when she she lost her husband on vacation. So he, he tragically passed away and she went into mourning. And after coming out of mourning, she wrote a blog post on Facebook in which she described like 
deeply personal feelings. Like it doesn't get any more personal than losing a loved one. And at one point she says something to the effect of when you lose someone you love, your heart just bleeds. You don't know what to do. And what's interesting there, if you stop and pause is she's describing her own experience, like the loss of her own husband. But she's not saying when I lost someone, my heart bled. She's saying when you lose someone, your heart. So she's using a word, you, that we typically used to, to think about other people, right? Like not ourselves. And what we've learned is that this is another way that people can use language to make sense of their experiences in healthy ways. You talk about your own feelings, but as though they apply to the world in general, not just me. This is not about me and, and my own specific reaction when I, when I lose this person. Anyone would feel this way when they lose someone. Anyone would, would not know what to do. And that can be really powerful for helping people make meaning out of negative experiences. And I would, you know, look at an interview with an athlete after a bad game or whomever, after they experience some suffering, you will see people using this linguistic technique to make sense of their experience. And unconsciously, and, right? They're, yeah. And they're not even aware of it. They're connecting but, to the universal aspect of what it is to be human. And then that I'm sure helps with the pain. Normalizing it, normalizing an experience is so powerful because when we're often experiencing chatter, it feels like we alone are suffering and making it not about us can be really, really helpful. And language can help us do that. So, so, so words are, are, are fascinating. And in that vein, you talk about this practice of we have, I think as people, we tend to overshare the negative. We tend to talk about what's wrong. And, and you have a really interesting point about the power of the language there, yeah. right? When you're bringing it into the present and into other people's consciousness. Will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so when we're experiencing strong emotions, we're often highly motivated to share them with others, to talk about them. And other people can be incredible tools for helping us manage our chatter, but they can also be vulnerabilities. They can also actually make it worse. It really depends on who you talk to and how you talk to them. And this is where I think the world, popular culture sometimes gets it wrong because we often think that when you're experiencing really intense emotions, what you wanna do is just get them out express them vent, right? Find someone to unload. And what we know from lots of research is that when we find someone to talk to, venting our emotions, so just expressing them, let me tell you about what happened. You won't believe what this, this interviewer said and what she did and oh my God, like what that does is it makes, so let's say you and I are talking about that. That makes me feel really connected to you mm -hmm. because I know you're there, you're here to listen to me. That feels good. But if you just keep asking me questions about what I felt and what happened, just getting me to continue to unload, it doesn't help me solve the problem. It doesn't help me reframe mm -hmm. how I'm thinking about this thing that's bothering me. And so it instead leads to something called co-rumination, where you and I, we're ruminating together yeah. and we feel really close. It's great, you and I, but our problem persists. So I go home or I shut the computer and I'm still upset. 
So the, the best kinds of conversations for helping us manage chatter are ones where you can talk to someone who's really there to listen to you. They're, they're empathic and, and you definitely share your emotions. But at some point in the conversation, the other person starts helping you reframe it, mm -hmm. starts trying to break you out of just narrowly rehashing it and, and tries to help you look at the bigger picture. So actually there's, there's two facets to being like a good chatter advisor to someone else. It's you want to really hear them out, but also help them look at the bigger picture. Yeah, In my experience as well, they want to, sometimes it's more than venting. Sometimes they are processing their own trauma orally through telling the story. And sometimes people, I just, I'm thinking of myself when my father died as well. Like I, I found myself wanting to tell the whole story. When people ask me, no, I really want to hear the whole thing. Me hearing my recounting of what happened and that the facts were real and these, these are what they were. And it matched up with my internal chatter about what was happening and being able to kind of let that out into the world was very helpful. And you're right. Then, well, obviously in grief, it's a slightly different scenario because it takes a while until you can reframe anything. Yes. But, but yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point that like a good friend is able to help you move through something as opposed to wallow in it. Exactly. And, and you, you, you actually mentioned, I mean, time is important and there is an art to this. And I'm a scientist. I, I, you think of science as not art, right? It's all like perfectly precise. But, you know, I reviewed this whole science, this literature, like there's an art to being a good friend, a good advisor to others, because right after a negative emotion is triggered, like it's really powerful, someone might not be ready to have their experience be reframed yet, mm -hmm. right? Like different people may be ready at different points. And so, so the take home for me is I'm really deliberate about who I go to for support. Like there's some people that I love deeply and I know love me, I don't talk to them about my problems. Like I, I, I actively avoid them actually. And instead <laughs> there are like a set of other people who I talk to because I know the ones who I avoid aren't going to help. They're just going to rile me up. And so I think there's some, some take-homes there that people can find. I want to ask you a little bit about the tools that you talk about in the book in order to address negative chatter. And I guess I would just frame that by saying that positive chatter, positive internal dialogue seems to be a really motivating factor for a lot of people. And I think it's really hard to do. Like I've never been able to sort of psych myself up. Like I'm, I'm just not wired that way. And so I wondered, do you implement tools to get to neutral or to get to a more positive internal dialogue? Yeah. So let, let's talk about positivity for a bit, because I think it's an interesting topic. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a large push to be happy, happy, happy. And look, I love being happy. You could see I'm smiling and it feels great, but I would not wish on my worst enemy that they could never experience negativity. Negativity, negative emotions in, in small doses are, are really, really useful. Like when I experience a pang of anxiety before having to do something important, that's very good. It mobilizes me to prepare for a presentation or an interview or, or work on the paper, right? So there's an example I give in the book, in fact, to really uh, hammer this home. There, there are certain children that are born every year without the, experience to, without the ability to experience physical pain due to a genetic 
condition. And, and what happens to these kids is they end up dying young because when they put their hand on the stove, mm. they don't know to pull it away, right? They don't know when to stop scratching a mosquito bite because nothing's telling them it hurts after if they're scratching too much. And so negative emotions, anger, sadness, anxiety, they're good. They're good for us in small doses. When they become bad is when we bathe in them and, and the experiences become prolonged, which is really what chatter is all about, prolonging those negative experiences. So and that's where the pathology is, right? It's healthy to have negative feelings and emotions and thoughts. Absolutely. And I think if you're if you're trying to rid yourself of negativity, period, good luck, right? Because you're working against the way we work as human beings. We're designed to experience negativity in the same way that it's not possible to always be in the moment, right? We spend between a half and a third of waking life not in the moment, floating away into the past and the future. So, so my, my perspective is let's not work against how we're built. Let's try to work within the confines of how the mind works to make our experience more fluid and, and, and healthy and adaptive. So, so back to the question about like always having happy self-talk. No, you don't always have to have happy self-talk. You just don't want the chatter. You don't want the negative thought loops. It's okay if you screw up to think about, oh yeah, that was, I really screwed that up. I got to fix that. I, that, that little, little pinge of negativity there in the self-talk, it can be good, right? You learn from your mistakes. So I don't think we need to delude ourselves into always being, always being positive. Right. So That's then what are the why, tools? Do I sound like a total grouch? Not at all. <laughs> okay, you know, good. It doesn't sound misanthropic. It sounds very accepting of all aspects of what it is to be human. And exactly. And I, and I, I always say, you know, what you resist persists. Like if you, mm -hmm. if you're feeling ne negativity and you let it wash through you and you process it and you let it go, that's the best way out. Not, I'm not going to think about this or I'm not going to let myself. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the tools and what, how would you art articulate like the thesis of why you came up with them? So for me, the, 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 the question all along has been when we find ourselves experiencing chatter, when our when our inner voice runs amok, how can we bring those internal conversations back on track? And what we've learned is that there are no single magic pills. And I, and I really do like anyone who says they've got the one formula to fix this. I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that that's true. Instead, what we've learned is that there are lots of different kinds of tools that we can use to manage these internal conversations. And I think knowing about how these tools work, most they're very simple right? The science that went into them isn't simple, but the tools themselves, simple. That can be really empowering and useful. And so I, I divide them into three, three buckets or categories. There are things you could do on your own. And we've talked about a little bit like distant self-talk. So coaching yourself through a problem using your name or something called temporal distancing. So like with COVID, right? A lot of people are really anxious about how awful the situation is right now. One of the things you could do is Imagine how you're going to feel nine months or, or 12 months from now when things are back to normal. When you do that, when you engage in that mental time travel, that makes it clear that what we're going through, as awful as it is, it's temporary. It'll pass. And that gives us hope. Hope is like really, really powerful for helping people deal with, with chatter. So there are lots of things you could do on your own. And then another category are ways of 
tools that exist in our relationships with other people. So like ways of talking to other people that can be really helpful or ways that other people can help us, what I call invisibly without us even knowing it. Affectionate touch as an example, right? Like touch is, is, is like the first tool that we are exposed to for dealing with distress. A baby comes out of the womb, what do we do? Like we console the baby, like skin to skin, right? And so for adults too, we know that a, a simple affectionate touch, like patting someone's shoulder, giving them a hug, that releases feel good chemicals and makes you aw become aware of the fact that there are people who care about you. you of or, course or doing it. It's funny. I was having one of those founder entrepreneur moments a couple of weeks ago where I woke up in the middle of the night and I was extremely anxious about something. And Chat, that, that's chatter. That's chatter. Right. And I couldn't turn it off. It happens to me only once in a while. And I was implementing all my meditation and my breathing and everything and nothing was working. And I just put my hand on my heart and one on my heart and one on my stomach. And mm -hmm. I just sort of like gently held myself mm -hmm. and that that's what started to like, get me out of that loop. And, you know, I had a friend tell me the other day, she finished yoga. She was having a really, really hard time with something and she did a yoga practice and she was lying there and she, her hands were clasped. And then she realized, oh, I'm holding my own hand. Yeah. And it brought like this incredible sort of tenderness for herself. So you can do it to, for yourself as well. Yeah, that's fascinating to me because I and I we've never we should do experiments on this because that's kind of like talking to yourself like you're someone else and and that can be we know really useful. What you're describing is 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 like embracing yourself like someone else might do so and and that can be useful too. So that's very neat. And it can be powerful, but here's the there's the caveat, right, which is don't haphazardly hug people. <laughs> without without the invitation because for the touch to be useful it has to be wanted mutual yeah yeah um, you know we also do that thing of hugging when we don't mean it just the kind of pro forma yeah and the science would suggest that that actually isn't so good and so there are other ways of of interacting with other people that can also help with chatter other ways of them helping us that don't necessarily involve like saying anything, but just ways, things that they can do. So if my wife is at her wits end with work and kids um, there and doesn't ask me for help, but I know she's struggling. There are things that I can do. Like I pick up the dry cleaning or, or take care of dinner. We call that ways of helping invisibly. And that can help relieve chatter too. Without but, her asking you go and do something. That's right. Not all the time. Don't, I'm not that. Ethan, that you're a nice husband. You're going to give people Valentine's Day ideas. The invisible support can be really, really useful tool because if we volunteer help without people asking, sometimes it can backfire. And like, this happens a lot with, with kids or, or sometimes with like in-laws and, and, and kids like I'll see my daughter struggling. But hey, hey. Let me let me try to help you with this. Let me show you how to do this. I'm a, I'm a professor. I know how to do this. Did I ask you to help me? Do you think I don't know what I'm doing? Right. So so it can it can create a vulnerability if you impose yourself. And so in those situations, that's where the more indirect ways of helping can be useful. So that's the second second bucket. And there are lots of things there. The third one is what I find in technical in technical terms to be the mind blowers, which are 
the ways the, the our physical spaces can help us. And, and before I started really researching this book, I was mostly blind to these tools and, and I just found them to be so powerful. And so I'll tell you just maybe about a couple. Tell me if you, if you ever experienced this, but one tool is, is seeking out experiences of awe, like trying to experience the emotion of awe. So awe is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something grand that we just can't explain. So in Michigan, it's, I, I can't always see the stars because it's so gray, but when I can, I experience awe. I look up and I just cannot contemplate the billions of stars out there and what else might be out. It's just, it's, it's, it's wild. Other people get it from like looking at a piece of art or, or something else. But what we've learned is that experiencing awe can help with our chatter because it makes us and our concerns feel smaller. It leads to something called the shrinking of the self. So we're in the presence of something vast like the universe. Am I really going to keep worrying about what I said to that person the other day? Like that concern seems much smaller. So that's one way that the world around us can help us regulate what's happening inside. Another, another thing is, is just organizing your space. So I'm not the most organized guy. I usually like I'm pretty loose and there are papers and books and clothing all over the place. But when I experienced chatter, like when I was writing this book and ah, I don't know how to say this, I go into the kitchen and I, I clean all the pans and pots and neatly put them away. And, and so it turns out a lot of people do this and it's helpful when we're not feeling like our thoughts are our thoughts feel disordered or we don't have control mm -hmm. we've learned you can you can compensate by ordering the world around you right and so like organizing principles through yeah and this is what athletes do this all the time when they do rituals before big games rafael nadal like he has these elaborate rituals when he competes and isn't that just ocd though when when you it, it well, looks like it well so if you take this to an extreme then it can become a feature of OCD. But that's why I like using the metaphor of the tools. Any tool, if used improperly, can become harmful, right? The hammer can be a, a massive source of destruction if it's not used properly, but used in small doses, right? So I, you, you don't want to like spend all day cleaning or feel compelled to do so. But if you're struggling and you take five minutes to put things in order, the, the science says that can be helpful. That's a whole other book, right? Like at what point is the, like, what's the fulcrum that goes from having something be a beneficial behavior yes. into? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, thank you so much. I really, I really, this book is, is fantastic. And I think it's always so interesting to read something like this from the mind of a scientist that's not coming from a new agey place of, of healing and actually coming from a place of data and research and seeing how those things merge together. So it's, it's a really, it's a wonderful piece of work and, and I'm honored to have gotten to chat to you today. Thank you for tuning into my conversation with Ethan Cross. For more from Ethan, check out his book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. 
And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.